We are concerned in First Timothy with doctrine, and so let's turn our attention here. Paul is writing to young Timothy, his protege, who has taken the leadership role, the teaching pastor role at the church at Ephesus. He is working with older men, and he is fighting against false teachers. And so Paul is concerned that this young man be grounded and that this church be established on the, the right and the biblical expectations for ministry. And so we have been walking through this letter all the way through, keeping a mind to the fact that Paul is writing to a young man. He is this is a direct letter. It's one of the pastoral epistles, that is it was written to a pastor. The Ephesian letter was also written to this same church and it was addressed to the entire congregation. This letter is written specifically to Timothy to set Timothy's expectations in order, and to establish a direction and a path for Timothy to guide the Ephesian church as they pursued godliness. False teaching was rampant. There were endless myths and genealogies. There was secret knowledge. There was a hierarchy of information that was orbiting within the Ephesian church. There were teachers who were claiming to have secret knowledge that only they could give. Paul was desperate and concerned for Timothy to lay before the people and lay before the false teachers the foundations of the church as revealed by God through the revelation of his word. Back in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he tells Timothy why he's writing this letter. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress or a foundation of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. So Paul has a singular agenda in the letter to Timothy, this first letter to Timothy, and that is to make sure Timothy is not left in the dark about what is expected for the church of the living God. We have spent the last several weeks, and we've missed a week, but we've spent the last several weeks looking at the relationships within the church. You'll remember if you go back in, maybe you will, maybe you won't, If you've been with us in the deep recesses of your mind, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we dealt with the overall, general, pastoral relationships within the church. What was Timothy to be about as he related to the entirety of the local assembly? He was not to rebuke an older man, but encourage him as a father. He was to encourage younger men as brothers. Older women he was to address as mothers, and younger women as his sisters in all purity. That was the all-encompassing, the general relationship that the church was to have toward its members. Beginning in verse 3, we examined the specifics of the relationship of the local church to widows. And that really carried us all the way through verse 16, but in two different scenarios. You'll remember that verses 3 through 8 reminded us or informed us of the relationship of the church to the needy widows who are in need of care, who are unable to care for themselves. And verse 9, all the way down through verse 16, 
And really, 16 is the capstone. 9 to verse 15 informed us of the qualities and the characteristics of those widows who would be set aside for the purpose of ministry within the church. And so there was an order of widows in the early church that would be about the ministry because their household was no longer in operation as it had been when they had a husband and children within their home. So they were enrolled, they were enlisted, and they were no younger than 60 years of age. You'll remember those qualifications. So Paul goes from the general relationship in verses 1 to 2 to the specific relationship towards widows in verses 3 through 16, and then continues that specific relationship, but addresses it towards elders. And in this case, he's not speaking of older men, as he did in verse 1 of chapter 5, but rather of those who hold the office or the responsibility of pastors, elders, those who oversee and lead the church, those who equip the body, Ephesians chapter 4. Speaks about the honor that is to be given them, the care that needs to be taken when a charge comes against an elder, and the caution that needs to be present when appointing elders in the future. Paul here is concerned, and I can only imagine that Timothy in his youth is also concerned and is fearful of addressing elders who are much older than him, who have been saved longer than him perhaps, and yet are leading the church in a direction that is anything but grounded in the truth. In setting aside certain elders who were disqualified or in hearing and rebuking them publicly, he also was then to appoint elders and like any young elder, he was concerned and fearful of laying hands hastily on an appointed elder. That is, setting aside a man without proper examination for this role of leadership within the local church. That brought us to verse 25, 17 to 25, dealing with the elders, and we have one last specific relationship within the local church that is addressed in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And it is the relationship of slaves to masters within the church. That's where we come this evening for our time of study. Now, just as a side note, I don't know how many of your Bibles have the translation the way mine does, but how many of you have a paragraph break with the last phrase of verse 2 going with verse 3? Anybody? Anybody have that? Good. I do too. Good. We have the good Bibles, all the rest of you. No, I'm just teasing. At the end of verse 2, you'll see good service and uh, their good service are believers and beloved. Okay, that's the final phrase. Teach and urge these things. Teach and urge these things goes more naturally as the paragraph heading for verse 3 down through verse 10. And so it is separated out from verse 2. I was talking with somebody this week and I don't think they had ever known as I hadn't for a long time, that verse numbers don't exist in the Greek New Testament as it was given, in the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. There are no verse numbers. There are no chapters. Get ready for this. There are no breaks between words. In fact, if you have ever seen a manuscript of the New Testament, it is the most discouraging document on the face of the planet because it is all capital letters, 
and there is no break between any of the letters. They just run in a stream, just constant. Unbelievable. And so somewhere in the middle of the early church history, someone took upon themselves, a group of scribes, monks, stole away in the middle of nowhere because of a misunderstanding of what it was to be holy. A group of monks set aside the effort and the time to try to give us, in that time, a Greek translation or a Greek copy of the New Testament that actually had breaks in it, that found the breaks and established those breaks. So, these are not inspired verse breaks. And your chapter headings are not inspired. The inspiration comes in the actual words as we find them in the New Testament. And so, teach and urge these things got stuck with verse 2. And yet, upon further examination, it's the paragraph heading for verse 3. Just a whole bunch of information that I know you didn't plan on tonight. Nor did I. So, just wanted to share that with you. And if that shocked and rattled your world, then uh, we can talk about the fact that the verse numbers are not a part of the inspiration of Scripture. All right, that brings us to verse number one, and it really brings us to the issue of slavery. And this is a difficult issue, and this is one that I'm sure many of you have thought about. Why is it, or what were the circumstances that left the Apostle Paul and our Lord Jesus and every other writer of the New Testament kept them from confronting the social evil of slavery. You'll find no confrontation of slavery in this passage. You'll find no confrontation of slavery as evil in and of itself anywhere in your New Testaments. That's hard for us to grasp because of our context of slavery. Our slavery is, our mindset of slavery is wrapped up in the early history of our country, which was given fully to one ethnic group. The African American people group were targeted as the slaves of the early history of our country. They were treated with absolute disregard as if they were not even humans. They were sold. They were purchased, they were abused, they were killed, they were beaten, and they were granted no privileges that normal human beings would be granted. They were granted no opportunity for freedom from their masters. And it was evil. So we ask, why is it that the New Testament deals with slaves as if they are not to rebel and revolt against their masters. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking about someone coming to faith and whatever their situation is, they're not to be concerned to change it. So if you were called, that is you were saved when you were single, don't be in a hurry that you have to be married. Or if you were married, you do not need to divorce your spouse only let, verse 17 says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. So if you were circumcised into Judaism, you don't need to change that. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. You don't need to change that. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision 
but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called, the setting of life in which they were called. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But, in parentheses, if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Verse 22 goes on, For he who has called you in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So not only does the New Testament not confront or call upon the church or God's people to confront the evil and the cultural norm of slavery, but it also commends and calls upon those who are saved as slaves to not attempt any change of their setting. Spiritually before the Lord, they were now free, right? They were free in Christ. They were not under the bondage of sin. They were not, in the ultimate sense, slaves. And those who were saved as free men have become slaves of Christ. Paul's point is, whatever the case, don't change your setting or don't feel compelled to change your placement. So, in the Roman culture, let me give you a little bit of context and a little bit of history about slavery within the Roman culture. It's estimated that in Ephesus and in Rome and the major cities of the Roman Empire, slavery made up one-third of the population. That is, one-third of all the population were slaves. Slaves were indistinguishable from free men. You would see a slave on the street, and you would not know the difference between the slave and the free man who owned that slave. Most slaves saved enough to buy their freedom before the age of 30. There was a system set up so that a slave could save money and could buy his own freedom. In fact, history tells us that there were slaves in the Roman Empire who owned slaves. Slaves could own other slaves. It was not ethnically driven. It was not one people group that was singled out for slavery. But rather, you were born into slavery or you were conquered into slavery or because of debt, you sold yourself into slavery. Many within the Roman Empire sold themselves into slavery to the ones who held their debts. We have bankruptcy in American culture. How would you like it if uh, those credit card payments got away from you? You find yourself in the most serious of financial situations, and the only option that your government affords to you to repay those without going to prison for the rest of your life is to go ahead and sell yourself to the credit card company as their slave. In some ways, we won't get off on a rabbit trail, the credit card company is already your master if you are down that road, but we do not understand what it was to be a slave in the New Testament period. Slavery in the New Testament was, was the norm, it was the standard, it was the culture. Slaves within Ephesus and the church at Ephesus could be elders. We could have had elders in the church at Ephesus who were slaves and free men or masters of those slaves who were not elders. Can you imagine the tension that this would bring within the local church? Slaves could operate as custodians for property. 
They could operate as merchants for their masters, going out and buying and selling on behalf of their masters. They could be chief executive officers. You could be a slave and be a CEO. So I don't know which one you put on your business card, but CEO slash slave. Been one for 10 years trying to buy my way out of this. And you could even be a government official and be a slave if you were a Roman citizen. So no doubt there were many slaves within the local churches and some probably on their way to being elders at Ephesus. Those who are within the local church that do not own slaves are the poorest people in the church. That's how normal slavery was. Those who owned slaves within the church would have been the wealthiest of the church. And then the third category of people would have been the slaves who had come to Christ and were fellowshipping in the body of Christ. So that is the context in which we find slavery in the New Testament or in particular the Roman Empire as Paul addresses it here. The New Testament is not concerned primarily with social reform. It's not. It's concerned with radical heart transformation of the people of God. And as they live in reality of what God is doing on the inside, they will transform their culture from within. That is the salt and light that is spoken of, and we're going to get there in the Sermon on the Mount. You will not find a call for a revolution. First of all, it would have crushed their entire culture. Their economy would have collapsed because it was built on masters and slaves. Secondly, it would have brought reproach on the cause of Christ, that it was a political social agenda, which it is not. So the New Testament is concerned with the heart of the slave much more than the fact that he's a slave. It's concerned more with the heart of the master than it is with the fact that he is a master. And if masters, and we're going to look at this a little later, if masters operated within the boundaries of the New Testament commands to them and slaves operated within the boundaries of the New Testament to them, slavery would not be a bad thing. You would have masters who were fair, who were loving towards their slaves. You would have slaves who were respectful and loving towards their masters. And what we know to be the social evil of slavery would not exist. So the New Testament is concerned with the heart. We know that to be the case, even by the silence, as we address this issue of slaves and masters within the church at Ephesus. Now, Let's read this together and get a little grasp of it. We have two scenarios represented in these two verses, and we're going to unfold them in the minutes that we have left. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves or as bond slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching, that is the doctrine, may not be reviled. Now, second scenario. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord for us tonight, and we will put, teach, and urge these things into next week's study of the paragraph from verses 3 to 10, Lord willing. So, scenario number one, in verse 1, Christian slaves relating to non-Christian masters. That's our first scenario. 
What is the responsibility, the heart responsibility of the Christian slave to the unsaved, non-Christian master? It's not hard for you to understand what's here. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves, the yoke is a very common picture. We all were very familiar with the yoke. It could mean something further than what we understand. This could have been in the Greek culture uh, uh, an archway that was established, and there were two archways, and when you were brought in as a conquered nation, you would be put through either one of the archways or the other one, funneling you into two different categories. You were either going to be free within the culture that was conquered to operate under the domain of the new Roman Empire, or you were going to be, you were going to be sent into slavery and sold off into slavery to individuals who were going to inhabit your land. So they would have two archways, like a yoke. That could be the word picture that's here. I think that maybe just a stretch under the yoke is just a way of saying you are workers. That is what you do. You are slaves. Now let me start out at the beginning here before we get too much further and let you know that we are dealing with slaves and masters here. Okay, You cannot scratch out slave and put employee and you cannot slatch out master and put employer. And we're going to talk in the end about how this does apply to our existence. But be clear, we are talking about slaves and masters, the real deal. People who didn't have freedom. They couldn't walk off the job. Okay, here it is. Here's the responsibility from a relationship standpoint of those slaves within the body towards non-Christian masters. They must regard their pagan masters as worthy of all honor worthy of all honor by saying this or by instructing Timothy this way Paul gives us a little window into what was happening at Ephesus slaves were coming to Christ they had non-Christian masters and you can only imagine I, we, we can't imagine because none of us have been slaves that I'm aware of but coming as a slave, as someone who has been purchased, who has no intrinsic rights of your own, coming to faith in Christ, knowing the freedom that is yours in Christ, knowing that you have brothers and sisters now within the body of Christ, knowing that you're a part of a heavenly kingdom, you are just passing by. You're just, you're just a journeyman through this world. You come to Christ, your attitude towards your master could radically be affected. For the negative. Obviously, slaves were feeling that they no longer needed to respect and honor their non-saved or unchristian masters because they were now under the headship of Christ. They were slaves, yes, but they were free men in Christ. Therefore, they did not need to give honor to these unsaved, non-Christian masters. And Paul says, Timothy, let is an imperative... Timothy, here is the command. The slaves who are within the church must regard their own master as worthy of all honor. Not someone else's master. Their own master is to be respected. That is the command. And it is for all who are under the yoke of slavery. Now, this is why it is fun for us to study in the epistles. <clears throat> Paul does not just make a command. He gives us a purpose. He tells us right away why this command 
needs to be obeyed. Here is the overarching principle. Slaves, you are to count your masters as worthy of all honor. Why? What purpose does it have? What's the reason for this? Well, you find it with that little phrase that ought to become one of your favorites in your Bible study. So that. So that. And here's the purpose. One, the name of God. And two, the teaching may not be reviled. Excuse me. (coughs) Pardon me, and sorry for your ears. Two purposes given for this honor to be granted to unsaved masters. One, so that the name of God, that is the character of God, when you see the name of God in Scripture, it represents all that He is. The character of God and the character and the understanding of the teaching, that is the gospel, the core of teaching that represented the New Testament church and still represents the New Testament church, was being reviled because these slaves were counting their masters as unworthy of honor. These slaves were becoming the talk of the town. You've got a Christian slave. You've got an unruly, disrespectful slave. He used to be a good worker. Now he's a Christian. And now he doesn't think he's got to respect me or do what I tell him to do. Christian freedom does not allow for the Christian to ignore necessary components of the lives we live. Your freedom in Christ does not relieve you from authority structure over you. And this most severe authority in this culture did not relieve them of their responsibility to their masters. Galatians chapter 3 is important because I think it's probably an information piece that was a part of the thinking of the early church slave. Surely this verse was written above the sink in the slave quarters. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Nationality means nothing before God. There is neither slave nor free. Life situation means nothing before God. Gender means nothing before God, because those who are in Christ are one. They are His people. This was misunderstood and misapplied. These slaves were now no longer honoring their masters. In in Ephesians, the earlier letter to this church, chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to men. Why? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Slaves were called upon to serve and to honor their masters in spite of the spiritual standing of that master because they were serving as unto Christ and for the sake of the name of God and the credibility of the gospel. Titus chapter 2, slaves, verse 9, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, 
not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, the teaching of God our Savior. And folks, in the broadest sense of application of 1 Timothy chapter 6, understand that your day-to-day decisions, your life, my life, in the culture in which we live, has a direct relationship to your claim and the credibility of the gospel. This is something that I struggle with right after I've blasted my horn and screamed out at some lousy driver and raced around them, and I'm brought back to remember that my lifestyle brings credibility or tears apart the credibility of the gospel. This is a scenario that we have a hard time relating to, and yet the principle is, in the very broadest sense, the honor given to these masters, the lifestyle lived by these slaves, is directly tied to the credibility of God himself before sinners and the credibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two comes in verse two. Not a lot different, but it does have some unique challenges. This scenario is Christian slaves with Christian masters. Now we're really getting sticky. What about slaves who have Christian masters? Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, verse two says, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Those who were blessed as slaves to have believing masters were also given explicit instructions about their circumstance. Obviously, there was a major problem within the church at Ephesus and probably within all of the churches here in the Roman Empire of slaves and masters existing within the same local body. Employers and employees really don't, that does not draw a hard enough line for us to understand the social barriers that lie, that laid between these two groups of people. It's one thing to come and to see your boss across the aisle at church and to know that he's your brother in Christ. It's quite another to see the man who owns you and who is championing freedom in Christ and is your brother across the aisle. And it obviously was affecting in a negative sense the slaves who were within the church at Ephesus. Their relationship within the body to their believing masters was being damaged. Why? These slaves were coming to the wrong conclusion about their brotherhood with their masters. Verse 2 says, on the ground that they are brothers. They were being disrespectful to their masters. And so now you run into the, to a, a real issue of relationship. You have an authority figure. You have a master over a slave. The believing master has responsibility. But the slave is being addressed because slaves were setting apart their respect for their leadership because of their equality in Christ. They understood that all who gathered in the body of Christ were brothers and sisters, equal before the Lord. Galatians 3.28 was true and is true today. 
and yet their role within their life circumstance was unchanged by the spiritual reality of equality. This is a challenge at a lot of levels. There are a lot of levels of relationship, whether it be husband and wife, whether it be employee and employer, whether it be parent and child, there are a lot of levels where this becomes the challenge. If we are equal in Christ, why is it that I have to operate within a specific role under you? We are equal. We're brothers and sisters. We have one Father who is God. And we have one Lord who is Christ Jesus. We have one Spirit who dwells within us all. And yet Paul is reminding the slaves that their responsibility is to live not just enduring their life and their circumstance, but actually progressing forward and advancing in their service as slaves because their masters were believing. They were not only to avoid the disrespectful attitude towards their Christian masters, but the second part of verse 2 gives us the contrast. Rather, on the positive, they're to stop being disrespectful, and on the positive, they should serve all the better, all the more gusto in their service. Why? Because the beneficiaries of their work are their brothers and sisters in Christ. What a motivation! This is such a logical, ethical motivation that Paul gives. Believing masters, believing servants, disrespect is not to be there, and on the positive, they must serve all the better. They must give themselves entirely to the service of their master, since those who benefit, that would be their master, by their good service, are believers and beloved. And beloved folks, when you read beloved in scripture, it is not beloved of other people. That is a term for the Christian, beloved of God. That's the group of people who benefit by these slaves. This is the blight, really, of Christian organizations where managers and authorities are seen as inappropriate or less than worthy of respect by Christian workers. I've heard Christian management in the workforce say that the the last person they want to hire to work for them is another Christian. That's a sad commentary. And yet that's that's a lesser fruit of this principle from a much greater circumstance of slaves and masters. And so you have these two scenarios, and these are important for the relationship of the church. Those who are of the lowest esteem, those who are slaves were to live their lives in a way that brought honor and glory to God and to the gospel. And those who were of the lowest estate, who were saved and served others who were within the body of Christ, were to do so with great weight placed upon their back that the benefit of their work was going to go to another believer, one who is loved by God. So, how in the world do we not walk away from this section of our Bibles and just say, well, chalk that up to another piece of information, but that has no application to me today. Let's review what's here in conclusion. The section is about relationship between slaves and masters. It has to stay about slaves and masters. None of you are slaves that I know of. 
I don't think so, but none of you are slaves. Some of you wives may feel like, no, I'm just teasing. You are not slaves. No one owns you. And as far as I know, none of you are slave owners. And if you are, we need to talk afterward. But as far as I know, this context and this culture has no direct relationship to us. We really don't understand this. But the arguments that we find in verses 1 and 2 can certainly be applied from the greater to the lesser. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you have, you have the scenario of slavery and masters. And that is a severe scenario. Application from Scripture can be drawn from the greater to the lesser. That is, if there is a lesser circumstance, these principles would surely apply to the lesser circumstance if they apply to this most severe circumstance. So you have slaves and masters, which is beyond our comprehension as a culture at this point in America. But surely if these were the principles given to slaves, how much more are these principles the ones that should guide us as employees or employers. You understand what I'm saying? Greater to lesser in application. So as a secondary application, the primary application of this is that slaves within the body should relate rightly to others. A secondary application is all those who fall under direct authority must also see themselves as responsible to live out these same principles. If they are under the authority of an unbeliever, They must give all honor so that the name of God and the credibility of the gospel remains intact. If they are under the authority authority of a believing authority, they are not to disrespect that authority because they are brothers or sisters in Christ. Instead, they are to serve and work all the harder, knowing that the benefit will go to one who is a believer and beloved of God. Any and all authority to subordinate relationship can fall out of this section as secondary application. So I've always been frustrated with these sections just becoming about employers and employees. They're not. They're about slaves and masters. And that's what we need to remember is here. And this is a very severe case that we as a culture can understand. And yet secondarily, as application, we certainly can go to the lesser and know that these would still hold fast for an employee and employer relationship. Galatians 3:28 is true. And it is to be championed in the church. There is neither slave nor free, there are no ethnic backgrounds that matter. It's not Jew or Gentile, it's not in our culture, it's not German or Swedish or Italian. That's just for me, Sicilian. Whatever your background, that doesn't matter before God. We are a church. We are saved under Christ, and we are one people. But 1 Timothy 6, 1-2 is the guideline in which the former, that is Galatians 3.28, must operate. So you say, how is it that these brothers and sisters must relate to one another? That's why we have 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, as well as Ephesians and Titus giving us input as well. Okay? That's what we find in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, let me give you one little nugget for thought for this week because this has been on my heart and on my mind for some time. I believe that there is a very real 
application and aspect where we might in the future of our ministry see this played out. I think that we have the potential, we have a desire, and we'll see how the Lord directs our steps to see the agricultural workers within our community and within our valley not only come to Christ but be discipled and raised up within the church to serve and to lead, to be equipped for the work of the ministry. So, what would we do and how would we relate if our church was experiencing an influx of agricultural workers from our valley? How would they relate to seeing those who they work for? This is all something that is very much in the future. I don't know how that would pan out, but I know that 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, Titus 2, and Ephesians chapter 5, or 6, rather, would all have to come into play. These are challenging, challenging relationships. There is no doubt about it. And the social barrier is, is immense. And yet if Galatians 3.28 is the cry of the church, then we must be intentional and we must be purposeful about making sure that the relationships within the body not only exist properly, but bring honor and glory and credibility to the gospel that we preach.